Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel. This is a special bonus edition of the Final Draft Podcast, where it is my great pleasure to be sharing not only an incredible new Australian novel, but an incredible new voice in the uh, radio production, podcasting, just creating amazing book content world. Paul Dalgano is going to be joining us. His new novel is called A Country of Eternal Light, and he is in conversation with 2SER producer Irene Diacanastasis. Now, you are on the Final Draft podcast. It is all about books, writing, and literary culture. Final Draft broadcasts every week from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, Saturday morning and Wednesday night, if you're, uh, if you're looking to tune in. And here at Final Draft, we love exploring Australian writing. Whether it be debut authors, established authors, the authors you love, the authors you are going to love as soon as you discover them, because these are the stories that make us who we are. And I want to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on Final Draft, the 2SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people. I am recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands. There has never been a treaty made in this country. As I said, Paul Dalgano is going to be joining us. I love Paul. Um, it was so great to chat to him a few years back. You can catch that conversation on his novel, Polly, in the podcast feed. You've got to go back a little bit, but it's worth the search. Today, though, I am handing over the reins. Discover Irene Diacanastasis in conversation with Paul Dalgano, A Country of Eternal Light. Today I am joined by the wonderful Paul Dalgano, who is here to talk about his debut novel, A Country of Eternal Light, released on February 1st. Paul, thank you for joining us and congratulations on the release. Thanks, Irene. Nice to be here. Well, for listeners looking to add to their summer reading list, how would you describe A Country of Eternal Light? Um, in, in some ways, A Country of Eternal Light is a ghost story in that the narrator, Margaret, is dead um, at the time that we join her. And uh, we essentially follow Margaret revisiting um, episodes in her life, by which I mean she, she's not just recalling them, she's literally revisiting them, meaning that sometimes there's a, a living Margaret and a dead Margaret in the same time, I guess, that she's visiting. And quite a lot of her focus is, uh, well, there's kind of her best friend, Barb, who's who's a kind of lifelong friend that she revisits scenes with. Um, there's her twin daughters, Eva and Rachel, um, one of whom lives in Spain, one of whom lives in Australia that she visits. Uh, Margaret herself is in Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. Uh, and there's her husband, Henry. And really, we are going uh, through back through these scenes with Margaret from some kind of afterworld that she doesn't really understand. She's, she's not a particularly religious person. She doesn't necessarily believe in life life after death. And yet there she is revisiting these scenes and she kind of has a nagging sense that there's something there that, that she's missing, whether she's deliberately blocked something out or whether um, she's accidentally blocked something out. She, she has a sense that there's some point potentially to, to her going back to revisit all of these things. What was your motivation or inspiration to write this particular story? Um, I, I was very interested in the idea of complicated grief, which is, um, in some ways, it's a bit of a, a strange term. I mean, um, as as we all know, or all will at some point, all, all grief is complicated. But that specific term refers to when um, usually it's it's a death that kind of falls outside what you expect. So, um, you know, we all expect 
an elderly grandparent or great grandparent to to die at a at a ripe old age kind of thing. And um, whereas if, for example, a child dies, that can that can cause complicated grief where you literally can't process what's happened because it's so shocking. It's, it goes against um, the kind of what, what you perceive to be the natural order of things. Um, and also um, a particular aspect of um, not being there, not, not seeing um, a loved one after they've died. So in the funeral home or at least being there in the funeral, whether whether you see the body or whether you just see, you know, a coffin or or whatever, um, can cause this kind of uh, this phenomenon of complicated grief, where um, you kind of know the person's dead um, and you feel that and you're grieving that, but at the same time you don't have a finality. So in a way, they're kind of alive and kind of dead. And um, as as I'm sure everyone will have picked up by my accent, I'm uh, originally from Australia. I'm from Scotland, and um, I, in my own case, yeah, I've had a, a couple of instances because I've been here for 12 years oh, of wow. family members or loved ones who have died that I just I haven't uh, been able for one reason or one reason or another to get over there, including during uh, the kind of COVID lockdowns. And so, yeah, I was just really interested in this idea of um, what happens when you don't get that chance to say a final goodbye to somebody. How, how might that manifest? That's very interesting. Now, going back to Margaret, she's quite a complex character and obviously readers are positioned within a stream of consciousness throughout this whole novel so what was it like writing her character and her development through the novel uh, uh, margaret really changed i mean uh, uh, the, the earliest bits of this book i wrote were um, a number of years ago and really what i was very concerned with it as you said it's a kind of first person thing we're inside margaret's thoughts what I was really concerned to to avoid really was that uh, it become a kind of caricature um, of a person. So I just, you know, basically had to keep going until I found a, a voice that felt quite authentic and quite true to me. And one of the things kind of in my background, so, so I was the first person at my um, in my family to go to university oh, and wow. I come from a, a very kind of working class background. I mean, um, both sides of the family for for generations gone by, all um, kind of manual labor, working in things like the fish industry, et cetera. And wh- when I went to university, um, I remember like, like this this happened with a few different people in my family, but particularly I think my mum and my dad's mum, so my maternal grandma, they would say things like, oh, you know, um, I wish I just, you know, I, I'm really glad you're at university. I wish I'd had the brains to go there. And it always broke my heart. And I, I was never quite able to convince them of this, but the the very plain truth to me was that, you know, they were uh, they were as smart as, if not smarter than probably the majority of people I was at university with, um, including me. And so they, they, they had this kind of thing. So my, my the grand that I mentioned, you know, she worked um, in the fish yards for most of her life. She raised triplets um, and and my dad, so she raised four kids. Um, and you know, when I was at uni, and she said, "What are you doing at uni?" And I said, "Well, we're just reading this thing called Paradise Lost at the moment." And she said, "Oh, yeah, like I read Paradise Lost, and I I, I enjoyed it, but then the sequel, I wasn't really that into the <laughs> sequel. You know, it didn't didn't work for me." And um, basically, she just got it from the library at some point in the past, and. That really struck me. It's the kind of thing that informs the character of Margaret. There's a kind of um, assumption that if you don't, you don't have the 
if you're not from the right background, the assumption is almost like you don't have the brains, you don't actually have the capability to be a, a thinking person who just follows their interests in life. And of course, as anybody from from that background knows, that's just simply not true. You've got um, you know, it's a bell curve, but we've all got more or less the same intelligence, more or less the same amount of energy and range of interests in life. And um, it comes down much more to cultural capital. So, you know, what your parents have done or your parents' friends and where you live and where you're lucky enough to be born. So I, I was really keen and interested to make Margaret this kind of character, which is a working class uh, woman who um, very much is self-taught and in love with language and in love with learning and in love with life um and but not coming at it from a place of um assuming she's any better than anyone else she's just she's just following her interests and following her kind of her life really one other thing i observed about margaret maybe this wasn't my own personal observation but when she was constantly revisiting a memory almost always made a comment on her physical appearance do you know the reasons for this was it because that margaret is now in a position of observing herself rather than being the one worried about people observing her that she can finally critique herself or see herself for who she really is um yeah that's a, that's yeah that's an interesting thought um what i was really thinking was that Margaret, the narrator, doesn't have a body. I mean, um, we actually go through, um, she, she's there when she's being cremated at one point. So I think she has a real fascination with bodies and life. So, you know, she, she's looking at, um, right at the start of the book, she's looking at her daughters when she's young and really everyone in her, her, her daughter's um, class and their teacher and things. And it's a real fascination for the physical form because she no longer has it. Um, so, you know, she she kind of ruminates, I guess, on hands and, you know, why, why don't we use our hands more for this or for that while we're alive? Because she's coming from a point of view of literally not having a not having a body. So as we, um, I guess, go through life and all have our different hang ups about our bodies and, you know, um, whether they look right, whether they work right whether other people's are better than ours, et cetera, et cetera. What we kind of, I guess, can't really take into account and can't really appreciate is, hey, we, we've got a body, you know, and it's working and it's breathing and the, the heart beats. And um, even in tough situations where people are living with chronic pain or long-term illness, um, there's still a kind of inhabiting of the body that uh, if we can imagine being in a place where you no longer have the body, it's a kind of afterlife situation. Um, I just think we might look back and, um, if not kind of appreciate in a gooey way, at least um, take stock of this kind of phenomenon that we're, that we're walking around in bodies that themselves are temporary. We feel kind of trapped by them, liberated by them, etc. But they are um, they are temporary vessels, really. So I, I think that's really the reason Margaret's quite fascinated with that. Particularly with her two daughters, Ava and Rachel, how would you describe their mother-daughter relationship? Eva and Rachel are twins. So um, Margaret had them when she was 26. And um, like like most people didn't expect to have twins. You know, it's just the way it worked out. And they have, uh, um, she loves them both, I would say, equally. But she also realizes they're quite different people. So Eva is quite cerebral. She's in her head quite a lot. She's the, uh, the, the traditionally academically gifted of the two girls. 
um, you know, Mar Margaret has always seen her as a bit of a prodigy. She's uh, learnt languages from an early age, etc. Whereas Rachel is the, I mean, as a broad kind of generalization, more the, the feeler of the two. She's more intuitive. Um, she's going to end up working as a counsellor when she gets older. She's, a, she's a, um, I guess, a more grounded rather than a heady kind of person. And then the two girls um, themselves have a, there's a kind of rupture essentially in their relationship when they're starting adolescence. And so from that point, even Rachel, who'd been thick as thieves as, as young girls, there's a real drifting apart. And um, throughout that period, what we, um, I guess, see in the book is that Eva continues her trajectory, which is, you know, going to be a success. She's be, uh, going to become a teacher, et cetera. Um, whereas Rachel, for, for a few years at least, goes off the rails and um, is involved in all sorts of things. She gets in a bit of trouble with the police and with drugs, et cetera. Um, and, and really, um, I think Margaret's role right to the end, I mean, but one of the main focuses of the book is the last three weeks of Margaret's life when Eva and Rachel return from their respective countries back to be with their mum, who they know has now been taken off of any kind of medication, only has a, a matter of weeks to, to live. And they're there together with her in those last three weeks. And Margaret's role during that, and really at all times for most of the girls' lives, is to try and play this honest broker where she loves them both. She wants them to love each other. She realizes that something's gone wrong with that relationship, but she, she's just kind of, she, she's the conduit, as, as happens often in families. You have that one person who everyone gets their news from. And when you take that person out, you're suddenly like, oh, I've, you know, I've got no idea what's happening with my cousin or my, you know, whoever. So yeah, she, she very much wants them to love each other, but realizes that's not necessarily possible in the way that it once was. Yeah, I, I think that's probably where we where we kind of join the book anyway, and and the kind of dynamic that's going on. What were your reasons for showcasing this fractured sibling relationship versus a close knit one right till the end? On, on the most basic level, I mean, um, conflict is the is always going to be like a bit better in a story. So, um, I, I have always been interested i mean obviously i've um come from a family and known lots of other families i'm always really interested in the fact that um I, you know maybe it's just the law of averages or whatever but it seems to me such a repeated pattern time and time again that uh, people who rub up each uh, rub up against each other in quite a fractious way end up in really close familial relationships with each other so it might be the the son that's it feels completely opposite to the dad or the daughter with the dad or the mother or whatever that thing is or siblings um and yeah i've just always been fascinated with that because these are the people we're essentially locked in houses with for many years of our life our most formative years our most vulnerable years and that thing of kind of having to not being able to walk away essentially you know as a kid you're stuck in the same car with your siblings or your you know other young relatives depending on your family situation and you just kind of have to keep going there. So as an adult, you just walk away. You would say, my God, that person's like, you know, right wing or left wing or whatever, whatever your kind of opinion would be as a kind of more supposedly sophisticated adult. But as a kid, you just need to keep turning up. You know, if it's your sibling, if it's a bullying relationship, if it's a loving relationship, you have no choice. You're going to be sitting on the same sofa, around the same table, in the back of the same car for literally years on end. 
That's very true. Now, your novel has an interesting structure along with the characters. For me, it kind of reminded me of T.S. Eliot's poems, Rhapsody on a Windy Night. I'm not too sure what the connection was there. But what was your reasons for this unconventional switching between time? I think it comes back to this idea of grief again and the way that we experience it. So, you know, nobody listening to this would be surprised by this idea and they've probably gone through it that grief isn't a linear experience and um usually it's kind of like you you kind of think oh thank god i'm finally over that and then suddenly something will hit you which might be a song a smell um you know anything that that you know what you had for breakfast literally anything can kind of put you back into that grieving state so in thinking of how to tell the story of complicated grief I just thought a linear structure wasn't really the way to do it. I, I kind of, I, I can't remember who said this. It, it's a kind of, it's one of those a theater, some theater writer at some point that, you know, you can have a play in the theater running backwards. So it starts at the end chronologically and ends at the beginning, but the experience watching it is always forwards. So as, as the person experiencing that story, you're moving forwards. The story always needs to move forwards. So I was really interested too in that idea of well, if you if you jump back ten years and forward ten years, etc., how do you actually keep the story moving forwards the whole way through the book so it doesn't feel frustrating really for a reader that they're, they're learning things that are moving the story forward at every single turn? So um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that talks more to the kind of challenge of actually trying to write it, but the. The overall reason or the the kind of instinct for doing that was just the the way grief works and the seemingly random things that are thrown up in terms of memories, which may not be these kind of um kind of almost hallmark moments where you're looking at your family members and saying, I really love you, you know, it might be walking your dog together or you know that time you went for a meal and it didn't seem like that big a deal at the time but th- these things can and do come back with such a vividness and force when you're least expecting it throughout grief now leading from this idea of grief readers are always reminded of margaret's mortality and the nature of death in this novel but how was it exploring these topics through these specific characters because you're so invested in these characters lives dealing with these complex emotions what kind of toll would that have taken on you? Well, um, when, when I wrote the book, um, or, or the main part, the kind of final edit or the final kind of push, really, um, was at the end of 2021, which, um, I mean, everywhere in the world, but particularly in Melbourne, just given the length of the, the lockdown periods here, this was right at the tail end of, you know, what had been the longest kind of lockdown city in the world or whatever it was at the time at the end of that kind of delta wave and before omicron came around at the the start of the following year so you know i just um i just lost my job i worked as a a comms person at uni um thanks to the pandemic you know lots of people got laid off um i had been locked in my house for ages you know with my kids and uh, etc so everyone in the same house and um was feeling as probably everyone was like just a, a a sense of sadness a sadness for me and my kids and for their future uh, but also like a, a kind of tenderness and sadness for everyone i just i feel if i saw 
uh, and probably still do, saw everyone really differently throughout that period and particularly towards the end of it. Just a sense of um, we're all very fragile and, you know, of course we all do our best to get through life not giving in to our vulnerabilities or, you know, collapsing in a heap. But that that period, I just felt really sensitized to how completely yeah, vulnerable we are, how difficult things were, how shaky the prospects for the future look, whether it's, you know, the climate or respiratory illness, etc. So in a way, I felt I was completely in that zone anyway. So when I, when I was writing these characters, I wasn't, I, I wasn't having to call myself back from a place of unrivaled optimism in the world. I, I was writing it from a, a place of, I, I would say, deep humility, just complete kind of, it's weird. The, the writing itself, I loved. So I wasn't writing it from a, a place of, I wasn't writing it thinking everything's terrible. I, I was completely engaged. I completely loved every single day that I worked on this book. But the overall feeling and um, sadness with what was happening in the world was really, really present with me in a way that wasn't an intellectual exercise. It was it was an embodied experience because of because of the context for yeah, as I said, for me, but for for everyone. Now to lead on to hopefully a much lighter note, a country of eternal light. Why did you choose this specific title? So that that title comes from uh, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's uh, book. That novel itself is woven throughout this one, um, kind of stitched into it essentially, like like the monster itself. But um, yeah, there's a lot of discussion. It, it keeps kind of cropping up throughout the book. Um, that Frankenstein and you know what um, the different characters think about that story and Margaret thinks about it quite a lot. It just keeps popping into her mind, and um, yeah, that um, so Frankenstein um, is written as a series of letters, like the novel uh, from a man called Robert Walton to his sister, who is another Margaret, Margaret Savile in this case, and in uh, one of his first, if not his first, letter to his sister. He's he's talking about the fact, I know this is repeating it for probably most people who have read the book, but the basic premise is he's trying to, um, he's a, a, a would-be successful explorer and he's trying to get to something called the Northwest Passage up by the North Pole by boat and become this kind of famous explorer. And he has, has fascinated me for years. That I think there's a way of reading Frankenstein, which is that the entire thing of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster is uh, completely within Robert Walton's imagination. Um, he spends the first five letters that he writes talking about how lonely he is, how he's desperate for a friend. If you were ever to meet somebody, just somebody, you know, um, that, that would change everything. So a desperately lonely man who finds himself completely encased in ice on all sides with these other crewmates on his boat that he he kind of feels better than and doesn't think are up to his kind of intellectual scratch. So anyway, Robert Walton fascinates me. Frankenstein fascinates me as a story that can be read as um, this This is all in somebody's imagination. This isn't actually, um, we, we can't take it even at the author's word. There's a way of reading it that goes beyond what Mary Shelley ever said it was about. And um, so, yeah, this this phrase that he he says to his sister, what cannot be expected in a country of eternal light, talks in a way to Robert's magical thinking as he's about to set off on this doomed journey. And yeah, it really struck me. I'm, I'm 
from Aberdeen, where a lot of the book is set, which is northeast Scotland, very light nights into, you know, in the middle of summer, sometimes you don't even get a night, you just get like a little bit of dusk for an hour or two. And otherwise, it's daylight, basically. So it it spoke to me on that level that the the book is basically uh, the main part of the book is set during the um, summer solstice in Aberdeen. So that in a a very practical sense is a, a kind of time of eternal light. But it also talks to, I don't know, something poetic and beyond the ordinary, something a little bit magical, which kind of strikes me as quite kind of central to Frankenstein and and to this book. That sounds really special. Now to conclude this interview, are there any new books on the horizon that we should listen out for? Uh, in terms of my books? or Your books, your books. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, um, I have another book coming out this year. So I have a book coming out in uh, June with a different publisher called uh, Prudish Nation. And that's a non-fiction book. And it's um, I, I've interviewed as part memoir, uh, but also I've interviewed about 35 contemporary, well-known Australian authors. Um, it's about the idea of, is Australia a prudish country? Um, and it's looking at um, unconventional, in, in quotation marks, relationships. So things like LGBTQIA style relationships, um, age gap relationships, sex worker and client relationships from from people who uh, not only kind of live that life, but write about and engage with um, those kind of themes. And um, yeah, so and and writing a, a bit about yeah my own life, I guess, in in relation to those kind of themes. And so yeah, that that one's coming out in June this year. Well, that's very exciting news. Thank you again, Paul, for this interview, for everyone listening at home. A Country of Eternal Light is already released, so go grab it and read it. And thank you again. Thanks, Irene. That is it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you also to Paul Dalgano. I cannot wait to check out A Country of Eternal Light. And thank you to Irene Diakonastasis. She, uh, she, produced your research, recorded everything. She did the everything on that. I am just sharing it with you. Thank you so much to Irene. Keep an ear out for Irene as she features on 2SER across the programming. This has been Final Draft, uh, recorded here on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented uh, by me. My name is Andrew Popel, and I would love if you wanted to stay in touch. Tell me what you're excited about reading. Tell me what you're loving reading. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at Final Draft 2SER. This was a special bonus. There will be another episode coming up very shortly. I have so many books to share. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back very soon with more incredible conversations from Australian authors. Till then, keep reading. In happy reading, I love to share the reading. Bye now.